Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast on the Class. Breakfast on the Class is sponsored by Stephen Rapport, the Breakfast King, on the occasion of the third day of Hanukkah, Latzlacha, Bakol, Mikol, Kol for success in everything. As well, Breakfast in the Class is dedicated in honor of Rochelle Sayed on the third day of Hanukkah, sponsored by her sons. The week of cold brew is sponsored by Emmanuel Zara, dedicated in honor of Haron Shochet, thanking him for his patience, kindness, all the work he does for the synagogue and community, and for answering any annoying questions without being annoying. Annoyed. Okay, And finally, the week of cold brew is sponsored by David E. Ash, um, in honor of you uh, and your substantial capacity to do good today and every day. Okay, my friends, we are now on the third day of Hanukkah. And it is appropriate to recognize that when a person uh, thinks about Hanukkah, there are two parts to the miracle of Hanukkah. And it's an interesting thing. You know, if you ask most people what the reason for the miracle is, what is the miracle? The miracle is that you took a candle, what happened? You lit, it, you lit the menorah, you lit the menorah, it should have lasted for one day, it lasted eight. Only yesterday I saw online someone wrote that they had the miracle of Hanukkah the other day, in, yesterday in reverse. He had eight donuts and they were all gone in one day. Either way, the point is, Rabotai, yet unbelievable that, that everybody focuses in the world that this is the miracle of Hanukkah. Look in Alanisim. And you'll see that in Al-Anisim, there's no mention. There's no mention. Right? Right? There's a lot of words that I just said there. And I know I'm going to get flack, by the way, for people saying, Rabbi, you said a lot of Hebrew words, you didn't translate them. Can I tell you, all I need to translate is this. You know what's not in all the Hebrew words that I just said? Anything about the one to eight ratio. No? Is this not... Right? al makes no mention about the fundamental mit, mit, um, uh, 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 miracle of Hanukkah. All talks about is about the war. In fact, if all it mentioned was the war, uh, for all you Faulty Towers fans out there, here we go, we got one that knows it. <laughs> I mentioned, I think I got away with it, right? Don't mention the war, right? So, you mentioned the war, fine. You don't want to mention what happened afterwards. Don't mention what happens afterwards. But Al-Anisim does go into what happened afterwards. They lit the candles in the, uh, in the holy sanctuary. They clean the Beit HaMikdash. And then it just neglects to mention the part about the miracle that we actually celebrate. So this idea, this concept actually... I think gives us a tremendous uh, point of reference for understanding the elements of Hanukkah that I think are perhaps the most important but get the least press. You see, the two miracles of Hanukkah, one miracle, the famous one that everybody knows about. 
But if you ask your average Jew on the street or your average Joe on the street, they will not be able to tell you that the miracle of Hanukkah was about the fact that the wars were won miraculously. They don't know that. That's not part of pop culture. I remember one time I was talking about the Jewish people beat the Greeks and this and that. This guy come up, comes up to me afterwards. He goes, why is that a celebration? I was like, what's the problem? He goes, I'm Greek. <laughs> I was like, no, no, it's Assyrian Greeks. They always write, you know, they always write that. The Assyrian Greeks, okay? Now, what's crazy to me uh, in, all this, uh, in all this back and forth is that if you actually think about it, the two miracles can be thought of as two bookends. The first miracle, the winning of the war, is really primarily about coming out from under the foot, from under the thumb of our oppressors. The second miracle is a conversation that happens after they've all been defeated. Now, the reason why we call Hanukkah, Hanukkah is because... What does that mean? They camped on the 25th. Right? You ask an Israeli, what does Hanukkah mean? It means that they parked on 25th Street. <laughs> right? Hanukkah means that they rested on the 25th. So the name of the holiday represents the moment that the war was over. Isn't that interesting? And I think... If we had to choose between the war or commemorating the beginning of the war or commemorating the end of the war, right? You see that the choice was to commemorate that which happened, that which begun, excuse me, after the wars were won. Because in many ways, the greatest challenge the Jewish people had was the challenge of rebuilding. Now we thank God on now, you know, over 75 years past that those horrific events that took place in, uh, in Europe. We're a long way away from the horrors of the Holocaust. But not that far away. You know, my mother was born to a survivor of the Holocaust, to someone who escaped from Germany. We're not that far away. That first generation that came here they had to do a lot of rebuilding. And that rebuilding was not always so simple. Because more than just the rebuilding of the shuls, more than just the rebuilding of the synagogues, they had to rebuild Jewish life. And I don't, I don't talk about the mikveh and the shul and the school. I'm talking about rebuilding community. I'm talking about rebuilding the sense of a Jewish identity when a Jewish identity has been smashed, when people change their names from Jewish names to non-Jewish names because they didn't want to be hunted anymore. Where if you go to England today, many of the synagogues look like houses because in the aftermath of the war and in the closeness and the proximity that they had to that beast, okay, it made them afraid. Jews were afraid to be members of shuls, not because they were afraid of paying membership, that was a side benefit. They were afraid to become members of shuls because in Germany, one of the ways they were hunted was they went, the Gestapo went to the synagogues, they took out the records of the Jews, and they had there in the records in the synagogue who the Jews in the town were and where they lived. 
So the trauma of what they'd gone through was something that prohibited them from deciding or doubling down on their Jewish identity, on their Jewish names, on their Jewish practices. My friends, I think in some ways, that's what Alanisim is describing. You know, in the days of Matityah and Yohanan Kohen Gadol, when this wicked regime stood up and tried to snuff out the flame of Judaism, where kids had to learn a game called dreidel because they weren't allowed to learn Torah. So if they were studying in the, in the caves in the mountainside and the Greek soldiers came, they could put away the Gemara and take out the dreidels and they could play this game. And that's where the minhag, they say, comes from. But my friends, and this is so important, those children that grew up under the specter of being murdered for learning, the parents where the law was in the Greek-occupied Judea, if you did Brit Milah on your son, they killed the baby and they killed the parents. They would hang them in squares, throw them off the rooftops of buildings. Crazy stuff was going on. You know, you think the Hellenization of the Jewish nation, right, that was happening because the Jews wanted to be Greek. They wanted their big fat Greek wedding. That's why they kind of moved towards Greek culture. They moved towards Greek culture because they were terrified. Because if you kept Shabbat and you ate Chalant, someone was going to die. That happens now too, but that's more to do with your stomach. Are we clear? Says Alanisim, Ve'achar kach ba'u banecha. Your children came. They got rid of the idols. They cleaned the Bet HaMikdash. In essence, one of the miracles of Hanukkah is the capacity of a human being to rebuild after tragedy. Again, I'm going to say that one more time. One of the great miracles of Hanukkah is the capacity to rebuild in the aftermath of tragedy. The wars tore us apart. The, uh, the persecution destroyed us, filled us with fear. And then, after it was over, what happens when they had a chance to rest? What did they do? Did they go to Miami Beach and take a suntan? Did they just relax? Is that what they did? The aftermath of winning the war and being at peace was not a bunch of Jews chilling, eating donuts. It was going back to the Bet HaMikdash, cleaning out the idols, cleaning the Bet HaMikdash, making it to a holy place, and lighting candles for all of eternity uh, for the Jewish people. There are two responses that people have to trauma and tragedy in their life. One response is the fetal position. Crawling up, just trying to lick your wounds, trying to feel safe again, you know, changing your last name so people don't find you. And then there's another response. The second response is to get right back up on the horse and to figure out how to position yourself so that the trauma, which can be momentary, does not become your story, your life story. Many years ago, Erev Shvi'ish El Pesach, my daughter and I went, was swimming in the ocean in Miami. 
in Mexico, excuse me, on a Pesach program. We'd gone with the family a little bit away from the beach. We didn't want to be, everyone was there, maybe less appropriate for a rabbi and his uh, family. So we went all the way to the right, uh, in between these two hotels. We had this whole open space for ourselves. We went swimming and all of a sudden I saw that my daughter was getting pulled into the water. And I saw that even though she was swimming far, my wife said, tell her to come back. I told her to come back. She starts swimming to the shore, but she's swimming towards the shore, but she's moving the opposite way. So I knew I had to make a decision, either to run to get help or to swim after her. I swam after her. I tried to calm her down, explain to her how we're going to swim the sideways, right? You swim perpendicular to the shore and then you come back until you're out of it. I explained to her we're going to do that, but the, the undertow was so strong, it kept pulling us down. Every time you get hit by a wave, you get smashed down. You try and come up, you get, for a second, you get smashed down again. And you're swimming as fast as you can, and the panic takes over, and you're flailing your arms. And as this is happening, you're getting, you know, more and more panic. You can barely, you have less and less to breathe. And she started panicking. She grabbed me around, around my shoulders, around my neck. She's trying to stay up also. I realized that we're not going to make it if we're in this situation for any much longer. I managed to pull myself up over the water and scream to my wife to get to yell for, forget for help, go for help. And this is the situation that we're in. They come running from both sides, from both hotels, they come running towards us. And thank God we managed to stay up enough that they got to us in time. And they took us with those orange things, Baruch Hashem, to the shore. We make a, I make a seudat hoda'ah usually, Erev Shvi'isha Pesach, for that reason. We get to the beach, my daughter sits down on the ground, we're like, <gasps> you know, after two seconds, she stops, I still remember the Mexican guy who saved us, asked her if she wanted some tequila. She was underage, in all countries. As soon as she breathed for one minute, one second, caught her breath, I stood her up, and I walked back with her into the ocean. Because if you don't, walk back into the ocean, then your fear of the ocean will exist forever. And after that, your sons came and they walked back into the temple that had been defiled. They walked back into the place where the entire rebellion had started with Matityahu, where their father was forced to sacrifice a pig to, on the Mizbech in the Beit HaMikdash. And instead of sacrificing a pig, he took out the knife of the Shekita and he started the war and he killed the, uh, the commander that had killed so many Jews that was trying to add insult to injury. And that, with that moment, the Mila Shem Elai moment, the Micha Mocha Ba'elim Amunai moment, the Maccabi moment, Micha Mocha Ba'elim Hashem, who is like you amongst the mighty, O oh God, with that moment, the rebellion was born and their freedom was won. But you think about the bodies littering the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash. You think about the tragedies that took place there. And what's the first thing they do after the war? The After that, your children came in and they clean your hechal. The question I ask to every person who is listening to this, here or otherwise, is what is your response to tragedy? Is it a Chanukah response to trauma? 
You rested on the 25th. Tell me what you did on the 26th. In every person's life, there are moments that for them represent the worst moment of their life. And you know what? People like to tell people who are having a tough time, you know something? You think you have it bad? A guy loses his leg, right? You know, ah, I know this guy who lost both legs. <laughs> Wimp, right? You're crying or losing one leg? You still have one. You know how people like to do that? Guy loses his job, uh, at least you still have your family. A guy loses his family, at least you still have your job. Right? People love to do this. We, and in some ways, it's the wrong thing to do. It minimizes the person's pain. And by the way, the worst experience of a person's life is no less the worst experience of their life because other people have had worse experiences than them. It's still the worst thing that they've encountered. The challenge, my friends, is actually what happens after that challenge. What happens after a person uh, is unfairly discriminated against because they're Jewish? Does that make them hide? Do they hide their Jewish identity because of that? Or do they bring it out stronger? What happens after a person suffers? You know, they lose a job, they lose a, a shiduch, they lose, God forbid, they could lose a child, they could lose a, a family member. How do you respond to that? A person who loses faith their whole life, they believe, they believe, they believe, they pray, they did this. A rabbi promised me if I said this for 40 days in a row, and then it doesn't happen. You know, for some people, the fact that they were promised 40 days in a row and then it would happen and it doesn't happen, that's incredibly traumatic. Even though their life is otherwise really good, it, rock, it really rocks the foundations of their faith. So let's not take away. Well, no one, no one's taking away. Whatever your difficult experiences have been, how do I look at that experience, the experience itself that I went through, and respond to my pain, respond to my trauma, respond to my tragedy? Look it in the eyes and say, this is my answer to you. You know, I don't know if uh, you guys are sports fans. But Jordan, for many years, was chasing ghosts. He kept trying to get to the finals, but he got stopped again and again and again, right? Who's, who got in his way? Pistons, right? Sorry? Yeah, Isaiah. Again, again, again. And you see the frustration. Is there anything better? Is there anything better than being able to look at that guy? How many rings do you have? Is there anything better? A person in their mind can isolate the trauma or the tragedy of their life into a place, into a box. They can identify it. They can put it in one place in their mind. And then, so to speak, mentally, I'm giving you a mental picture here, a visual exercise. Look at it. 
talk to it and tell your Greek predecessors, I'm going into the Beit HaMikdash now. I'm relighting the candles. I'm cleaning it all out. It's unbelievable. Most people think that the process of healing is feeling bad for yourself enough days in a row. But actually, oftentimes, that doesn't make you feel better. And you don't recover from trauma or tragedy that way. It just gives you more time that you lost to that trauma or tragedy. What's the worst problem of a, a relationship that didn't work out well? Or a business deal that you were working six years on? What's the biggest problem? It's the lost time. Why would you give it one more day? Wake up the next day, look at it and say, this is what I'm doing because of you. How many people in business have turned around their greatest failures to become the greatest catalysts for them to shift into another industry, right? Into another place in their life. How many people have experienced these things and they flip it and they really, they use it as this incredible fuel to move somewhere. What do you want to say to your Greek, tra tra your, your Greek um, uh, tor tormentors? Your Greek taskmasters? For, for generations, Holocaust survivors, they took every baby that they had, and you know what they would say when the baby would be born? They hand the baby to the grandfather? Oh, another slap in the face of Hitler. And I was thinking, really? We just had a baby. You gotta bring Hitler into the room? For me, for you, no, we don't gotta bring Hitler into the room. For them? Every baby was an answer to their trauma and their tragedy. They're pulling them up again, slapping them again. You understand? That was the salve, that was the healing. What are you going to do? What are you going to respond? Uh, we have the capacity to do unbelievable things, uh, to rebuild, to recover, and to move on. Baruch Adonai Amen.